his love endures. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever and ever. Amen. Probably you know that an Ebenezer is a marker. It's an Old Testament term where you would place a marker most often.
recognize, we typically take slavery as an example. How could Christians who supposedly believed in the gospel so easily rationalize the enslavement of other human beings? Churchgoers with good intentions, worshiping together every Sunday and reading the Bible, all the while using God's word to justify treating men, women, and children as property. This frightens me. Good intentions, regular worship, and Bible study do not prevent the blindness in us. We look back on slave-owning churchgoers of 150 years ago and ask, how could they have treated their fellow human beings that way? I wonder if followers of Christ 150 years from now will look back at Christians in America today and ask, how could they live in such big houses? How could they drive such nice cars and wear such nice clothes? How could they live in such a way, that, in such affluence, while thousands of children were dying because they didn't have food and water? How could they go on with their lives as though the billions of poor didn't exist? Is materialism the blind spot in American Christianity today? Those two paragraphs were written by a guy named David Platt, who has written a recent book called Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. In this, these few verses this morning from the letter of James, we have the, the strongest, we have the most alarming and uh, perhaps the most difficult few verses of this book. It's, it's the kind of passage that if you weren't preaching through a book, you'd just try to skip over. And so it's difficult to say, it's difficult to hear. But if we're really going to live our life out on the street as Christians, if our Christianity at street level is going to be authentic, it's going to have a huge, I mean, how we use our wealth, how we think about our wealth is, there's going to be a huge impact there on our lives. And so James, the pastor of this first church in Jerusalem, is looking out over his crowd, his congregation, and he's giving some pretty severe judgment against those who are in the church who profess to follow Christ, yet in reality their God is money. If you go back to just James chapter 4 in the beginning, you'll see a pattern that James is just delivering a series of warnings. And we're coming to this crescendo here in chapter 1 verse 5. And and the warning James is giving, kind of like an Old Testament prophet, he's, he's standing up and he's looking at the people who are followers of God. And he's thundering against these people who have taken good things and made them God things. He's, take, he's looking and saying, hey, you've taken a temporary thing and made it an ultimate thing. And, and just like the Old Testament prophet, James is doing the same thing. In James chapter 4, verse 1, his, his warning is, you've taken a desire, a, maybe even a good desire, and it's morphed in or it's turned into a demand. And now you must have something in order to be happy. James chapter 4, verse 11, he's, he's saying, you've taken a good thing, discernment, and it's turned into defamation. You're, you're using judgment, good judgment, but now suddenly your judgment is, I'm now looking down on everybody. And I know now what's best for the folks that are around me. 
Verse 13, a good thing, planning, has turned into presumption. A good and necessary thing for a Christian is to make a plan. But it's, it's turning over into a God thing. It's presumption. Now, I know what's going to happen tomorrow. I know what's going to happen next year. I've got it all planned out. And I really don't, don't really need God until, you know, the very end He comes in real helpful. But until the very end, I've sort of got it under control. And so the, the title of the sermon last week was Self-Sovereignty. We, we believe that we're following Christ, but our practice out on the street is that we're practical atheists. We, we operate according to what we think is the best thing to do, and we discount God. And so we come to this great crescendo, and James saves his strongest language for chapter 5, or verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1. And it's for those who have made, have taken a good thing, money, and made it into a God thing. David Platt, as he stated, that the most frightening part about his observations and the most frightening part about these observations from James is James is talking to the people that are in the church. He's not thundering against all the wicked wealthy outside. He's saying, hey, this is inside the four walls. It's, it's people who have good intentions, people who worship every day, people who read their Bibles. And perhaps just because it's so difficult to see, James uses this very um, intense language, try, trying to sort of jolt you, trying to get you to sit up, uh, try to help you to take note of what's happening. Notice in verse 1, Come now, you rich who weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Chapter verse 3, the corrosion of your wealth is eating your flesh like fire. I mean, what a powerful image. All the wealth that you've built up around you, it's basically you just put let yourself on fire with it. It's going to just eat at your flesh. Verse 4, the cries of those who, have, who you have cheated have reached the, the Lord of hosts. And the Lord of hosts here is the commander of an army. And so, what James is saying is, even though you're powerful, even though you're wealthy, even though you think you're in control, and, and you don't think that the people that serve underneath you have much of a voice or they, they don't have any influence, James is helping to readjust or recalibrate your understanding. Their cries have reached somebody. Their cries have reached the, the Lord of hosts. And this Lord who has incomparable power has heard their cry and He's on the way. Verse 5, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. I mean, I mean, how much more picturesque can you be? How much more graphic? You're, James is saying, some of you who are misusing your wealth, what, what, what you're like is you're like a, a stupid beast. You, you trot out to the field and you just eat all you can. And you just gorge yourself on your wealth. You're not paying attention to anything else around you. You're just eating and eating. And what you don't see is the butcher is standing at the gate. And he's looking at you. He's going, keep eating. Because you're going to make a nice prime rib tonight. 
And so James is using this very heavy, this very graphic language to, to get the audience to say, whoa, this is a little different than what he's been talking about. He, the tone has changed and he wants us to take notice of that. The images here are, are uncomfortable. If you invited your friend to come to church today and they showed up, you're going, oh, why couldn't we have the grace, you know, God loves you sermon today? I mean, of all Sundays. I mean, I know we've been going through James. I should have planned out my vacation a little bit more cagey. And I should have just said, well, this is the week I'm, I'm taking my vacation. And, and I ask myself when, I, when I'm feeling this way about myself, I'm preaching this sermon. You, you're just going to hear it one time. I've been hearing it all week. And it creates this heartburn. And I ask myself, well, why, why, when we come to this, why does this create a, a certain heartburn that other things just don't seem to have as, as quite a universal appeal? And one thing is because we're familiar with Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, where he tells you there's an unusually strong connection, there's an unusually strong cord between your wallet and your heart. For where your wallet is, that's my version, there your heart is also. I mean, Jesus is just saying, hey, it's really simple. If you want to see what rules somebody's life, just go home, open their checkbook. There's a very easy path. You follow right down there and you get the end results. Not complicated. It's just I don't want anybody to look at my checkbook and follow that path. So it makes me nervous. This, this sermon, these, these verses, it pulls on that cord. And whenever that cord starts to wobble, I take notice. Another thing that, one, another reason I think that creates a kind of heartburn for us all, and I would say as I speak to this crowd versus when I go to Haiti in two weeks, if I were saying the same thing, I think I'd say something different. But I think we're educated enough, we're experienced enough, that we know, even though you may not feel like it when you get in your car and fill up your gas tank or something like that, you know behind that you and I live in the wealthiest place in the whole planet. And in terms of all of the world, and all of time, we're, we're in the very, very thin top layer of people. And you know the statistics, how many people live on $1 a day or $2 a day, and 80% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. So if you make more than $3,600 in a year, you're in the top 20%. And my guess is if you're just a high school student working a job, you can make that much money in a year. So, so what if you're not that in that level? What, what are you? One, one statistic says, you know, if you have food, if you have shelter, uh, if you have clothing, and if you have any source of transportation, even if it's public transportation, you're in the top 15% of the people on the planet today. So, so you know somehow when, when this cord gets pulled, you, you also know it's talking about you. You're, you're aware that you're, you're in you're in that group that could be considered wealthy, even though you may not feel like that as you sit here. 
But you know it. And so this heartburn creates this question in my soul, and it creates this question that gets asked to me. So I'm asking it for you. Okay, preacher, tell me how much is enough. I mean, what's the bottom line? I mean, I hear you. I'm not disbelieving what you're saying. But what I want to know is, what's my bottom line? And here's my answer. I don't know your bottom line. I don't know your bottom line. I don't think Scripture gives one bottom line that everybody has to follow. You know that the rich young ruler, he, he got a bottom line answer. Go sell all you have, come and follow me. But that's not, what, that's not the same answer that everybody else gives. But the fact that I don't know your bottom line, the fact that you can't go to a particular Scripture and say, this is my bottom line, doesn't mean that God doesn't have a bottom line for you. We can't just sort of throw up our hands in the air and say, oh, I just don't know. You throw your hands up in the air to the Lord and say, I don't know, but you know. And you, you help me determine what you would want me to hear from this particular book. And so as we walk through these few verses here, we're, we're going to see four particular warnings. And I, I think you could use these warnings as, as uh, sight lines. So as you're trying to ask this question and answer it, what, what, is it, what, is it, what is my bottom line? What is enough? You sort of put yourself in this sight line that James gives us, and you ask the question, well, let me just put myself here and see where I sense God moving me. And, and one sight line may not have a particular application to you, but I, I think when we get to, through all four, somewhere along the way you'll say, hey, I need to take a look at that. So that's what I want you to be listening for. What, what illustration, what sight line, where is it that God would be specifically speaking to me this morning, you'll see it very easily. There's two warnings here, verse four and verse six, warnings about how you acquire wealth. So James is looking and says, hey, here's one of the things that we need to be concerned about, how you actually gain wealth. And then the second thing, second pair of warnings come from chapter five, verse three and five. And it's a warning about abusing the wealth that you have. So acquiring wealth and then your use or Abuse of wealth. Let's take a look at the first two, verse 4 and 6. Warning about the way wealth is acquired. You see this word in verse 4. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. That's the key term here. Apparently there were wealthy businessmen, wealthy landowners, and they were just hiring day laborers. Or maybe somebody that was working longer than just a particular day. And they were supposed to give them a particular wage, something that was either fair, what the, this society had agreed on, or maybe they had a handshake deal. But somewhere when it came to paying, the landowner decided to slight the person who had been doing all the work in some way, to, to hold back, to, to withdraw something that was owed to the other person. And James really is restating part of the law, Deuteronomy 24, do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother, Israelite, or an alien living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he is poor and he's counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. Another 
definition of fraud comes from a commentary that says this, fraud is withholding a payment or evading a claim. Withholding a payment or evading a claim. Might be by neglect, could be taking advantage of another person, evasion of the law, delay, using your superior power so that those who really want the payment can't enforce you to do it. James leaves no room for speculation. All of our financial dealings must be honest. Every honorable debt must be paid. There's no room for anything else. The ears of the Lord are still open to cries of fraud. You've heard the term money talks. And I would say James is saying, yep, sure does. Got a big, loud megaphone. And when you defraud somebody, whether that's by evading a payment or withholding a payment or not paying a debt that you owe, and somebody cries out to the Lord, it talks. It talks right to the Lord. And it's possible that on this side of glory, you won't hear the answer to that, but you're going to hear an answer to it. And so we want to be aware that what you do speaks out. And it gets to the ears of the Lord. Verse 6, another warning about how you've gotten your wealth. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. And just notice what kind of person this is. He doesn't even resist. James is wanting you to just go ahead and pick up on this imagery. A righteous person who's been defrauded but does not resist. Most scholars think James is talking about justice here. Not, not just money, but the idea of there's, there's, there's really a, an, an unequal justice happening in society. There's just certain groups of people that are being oppressed. And uh, the people in the church are aware of it. They're, they're taking advantage of, of poor people. They are thinking, well, because I have the wealth, I get my way. Isn't that surprising you find that inside the church? I mean, here you have it in the very first church. The people who have come to Christ, who has given up his wealth and glory, now are saying, well, because of my personal little wealth and glory, I get to have things my way. And I think when, when I was thinking about this, just the sort of the, the first kinds of examples, and that may be true for you that come to mind, is you just... You just think of um, the Wall Street types. I mean, you, you think of somebody like Bernie Madoff, you know, that, that he came in with a lot of power, he came in with a lot of flash, and really very innocent people, you know, were ruined because of that. Or you might think of a, a particular politician. Maybe they don't actually have a lot of money, but they do have a lot of power. And so they use their power in a way that really is just self-indulgent. They, they have a position that allows them to take advantage of somebody that's underneath them and say, well, I'm going to let you please me because I've got the power. But I want us to not be too quick to draw the lines there. If you lived in the 1980s in North or South Carolina, you know, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. And the PTL club. And here was a man who was trying to preach the word of God at some level. I mean, I wasn't, I was only two at the time. I hardly remember it. Um, 
But but here he was, he, he was he was trying to get the gospel out, but something happened. And so now what I needed you to do, if I'm Jim Baker, is I need you to send me a thousand dollars. And that gives you a lifetime partnership in this big hotel that I'm going to build in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Well, gosh, lots of people gave a thousand dollars and somehow those buildings just didn't get built. But Jim Baker was surprisingly able to take a $3.4 million bonus for himself. See, he's using his position. He's even using the gospel for his own self-indulgence. And before you want to even draw a line at Jim Baker and say, well, you know, he's really just a fraud and a phony. How about King David? A man after God's own heart. I think in terms of devotion to to God, we'd all say, I wish I just had some fraction of what David had. But what happened? Position. Power. It turned into self-indulgence. Because I'm the king, I get to have my way. And once he had his way and it got found out, what did he do? He put to death a righteous man. So before you look at this particular few verses and say, yeah, that's those people out there. I just want us to be very aware of how quickly it can be. It, no, no, it's really this person in here. I, I can be a person who evades a payment. I can be a person who decides not to pay a debt back. I can be a person who uses power or influence in some way that really just serves myself. Then we have the warnings here about the way wealth is abused. Chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. You already know This, again, from Matthew chapter 6, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. James is just repeating back almost verbatim the words that Jesus, his older brother, used. And and so Jesus and James are coming together on this particular imagery. And, And what we're meant to see here is that God has supplied all that you have. God is the owner of everything. Yes, you may have your title, your name on a title to a car or a title to a home, but you're not the owner. You're just the steward. And God has given it to you for whatever reasons. And so you're supposed to be the steward. And here's what God typically wants. He, he wants to get his stuff into circulation. And he could have decided to do it any way he wanted to, but basically he's distributing it. It doesn't seem to be equal, so he's saying, we need to get the stuff in circulation, and here's what's happening. I'm giving some stuff to some people, and it's getting stuck. And it's meant to feed people, but you know what it's feeding? Insects. I'm trying to give this stuff to people who are following after me, and they're they're feeding insects. It's, it's actually just rotting. It, they've got so much stuff, they can't even use it. And so you go back to the garage, or you go back to the storage shed, or you go back in the attic and go, this was good, but now I've kept it so long it's not even useful. 
I've just taken some of what God has given me. I've just taken it out of circulation. Which creates this question. See, this just creates one question after another for me. I'm not giving you so many answers. But then I'm going to ask this question. Well, I know in the Bible you're supposed to plan. So planning is good. I know you're supposed to save. Saving is good. Proverbs, in case you don't believe me, Proverbs 6, 6. Go to the ant, you slugger. Consider its ways. Be wise. It doesn't have a commander. It doesn't have a ruler. Yet it stores its provision in the summer. When there's an abundance, the ant says, I've got an abundance. I've got to store it because I know days can be coming up like winter and I'm going to have to use what I've saved. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get, get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit. So I, I, I see James, I hear James. I'm already feeling uncomfortable. I'm thinking, why am I preaching this sermon? Maybe I can just skip it. And I'm, I'm seeing this proverb in other places where there's saving, and I have this tension. What's the difference between saving and hoarding? Let me give you my answer. For you, I don't know. That's not real helpful, is it? Just because I don't know what the difference is for you doesn't mean there isn't one for you. That's what I want you to hear me say. And so as I thought about this particular point, I just wanted to give some examples and maybe one of them would help sort of uh, help your thinking. John Wesley grew up in a very poverty stricken world. His parents were very poor. His dad was actually taken off to debtor's prison. And John Wesley, as you know, became an itinerant preacher and he became very popular in a, a method in which you would get together and rehearse the truths of the Bible. And eventually, he actually founded a denomination called the Methodists. That's where that comes from. And so John Wesley went from somebody that was not well known at all to somebody who started writing pamphlets. And then he made enormous sums of money towards the end of his life. And there's pretty well documented um, understanding of how he used that. In one of his early years, he made three pounds And he gave away three. The next year he made 40. He gave away 10. A couple years later he made 70. And he gave away 40. Towards the end of his career he made 1,400 pounds. And he just kept 30 for himself. So, so one way that John Wesley was thinking, and it's a way that can help sort of dislodge us from a, a kind of thinking that may be unhealthy, is when John Wesley got more money in, his first thought was, how can I give more? Not how can I live more? And it may be that we get a raise and the first thing we think is, now I can finally go out and get, and, and maybe you should. But at least in your thinking, what I want to try to insert into your brain right at that point is another thought. Is, is it possibly God has given you this so you could give it away? You, you couldn't have before now, but now you can give. So we want to think through that.
If you've ever bought a house from the 1950s, or you've ever been in your grandmother's house, who's a 1950s house, and you go in, especially if you're buying the house, you look around, what's the, almost the first thing you notice? Man, where are the closets? Where are the storage space? I mean, you go into the bedroom and you think, I can get like a coat in here and a high-top tennis shoe, and that's it. I cannot get anything. I can't get hardly anything that I own in this tiny little box. You go into a house that's built today. I mean, some closets are bedrooms. And and what I'm saying is, I just want you to think. So you get caught in the stream, and you're only comparing yourself to just your neighbor. And I want you to get out of that stream, and I just want you to maybe just stand in front of your closet or just stand in front of your garage or stand in front of your storage unit and just say, God, would you tell me how much is enough? How big does my storage closet need to be? See, I'm afraid we don't even get to that kind of question. And when we don't get there, then I think we're missing some things that God might have for us. When we do the budgeting here at Christ Community Church, and I specifically tell this to the staff, I'll say, hey, you're going to put down a budget, and let's just say the budget for the, uh, let's pick on David, the youth ministry. Where's David? He's probably teaching something. Well, good, so I can really use him. And I'll say, let's just say it's $1,000 for something. It doesn't really matter who it is or what the amount is, but I, this is what I tell them. I say, Look, it's $1,000. If that's what you need, just put down $1,000. But this is how I want you to think about it. I want you to think that when you go to that line item and you say, I need $20 for a meal, I need $20 for a book, I need $20 for a microphone, you think this way. I'm going to go to a member of the church on Sunday and say, "Uh, Ken, could you open your wallet up right now and give me a 20? Because I need to go get a microphone. I need to go get a meal. I need to... See, that's a very different way of thinking about how you would spend your money. Because it does come from your wallet. It does come from my wallet. It's just not just a line. And I wonder if we thought that way about God. See, He's opened up His wallet. You haven't earned any of it. He's just opening it up. And He's given you some talents. He's given you a place to live. He's given you a certain skill set, a certain education, that when you go and buy something... Not See, not just the 10% that you're supposed to give, but the whole 100%. And you say, God, I'm going to buy this. Would you open up your wallet and give me $100,000 for that? Or $10,000 for that? Or $10 for that? See, we have a, we have a mentality that in our, it's in our brain that thinks, now this stuff's ours, I gave God His. And God wants to say, no, no. I own all of it. So I want you to think through that as you think about how you spend your wealth. When you ask yourself questions, because you're about building the kingdom of God, do you think, well, how much can I spare or what will it take? Are you personally involved with the poor? See, it's easy, easy to ignore the poor until you know them by on a first-name basis. And then it gets much more difficult. 
finally, just underneath this point, I think an important, really important piece to remember is that you're not the judge. As you think through these things, as you make adjustments, it's not your job to monitor everybody else's habits. That's just not your job. You can't look at somebody else and say, well, you know, gosh, you should see their garage. They're a hoarder. You can't say that. Look, you don't want to say it. Because compared to 85% of the rest of the world, you're not going to look good. So when, when you have a sense that God is moving, God is saying, hey, there's some things I want you to change. You're, you're, I don't want your flesh to be eaten by fire. Then just assume that's a word for you. That's not a word for everybody here. It's not going to come out the same way for everybody here. Your particular financial situation is not God's standard. Finally, verse 5, and you're going, please, let's get to the end of the sermon. And here we're going to hit pretty close to home if we haven't hit it, hit it already. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Interestingly, this word luxury um, means soft. And one old translation put it as delicate. You have lived a delicate life. And what you're supposed to hear in that is, when your luxuries fail, you crack up. When the AC goes out, when the car doesn't work, when the water isn't cold enough, when the seat's not as comfortable as you're used to, when the drive through is crowded, when it's... Tough on the highway. And it just doesn't work out just how, and you start, you're brittle. And, and just your world begins to unravel because your luxuries get taken away from you. You're soft. You, you live self-indulgent lives. In other words, you live a life without self-denial. And so James is, is really warning his people. And, and he could have just used, again, his brother's words from Luke 16. You, you're familiar with this parable. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar, a poor person named Lazarus. And he longed to eat whatever would fall from the rich man's table. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side and the rich man died also. He was buried and he went to hell and he was in torment. And he looked up and he saw Abraham far away. Lazarus was by his side and he called to him, Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son... Oh, these are such terrible words. Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things? Lazarus received bad things? Well, now he's eternally comforted here. And you, who lived on earth in luxury, are now forever in agony. 
And these are Jesus' words. So we really need to take an assessment of our sight lines. Not according to your neighbor, not according to your pastor, but according to the God of the universe. And if you had a continuum and you were, you were a, were you more of a soft person or a person living in self-denial? Are, are you closer to pleasure or closer to painful situations here on earth for the glory of eternity? A friend told me last week that he would be glad when I went on vacation. He said, James is killing me. And this is a tough one. I think this is the toughest sermon in the whole series. But because the language is so strong, I think it's so critical that you get it. And that maybe if I just pull out one sermon for you to get, this probably would be the sermon. It has such a a far-reaching effect. Uh, Another sermon that I'm not going to deliver right now comes from 2 Corinthians 8, which is really the answer to how we really make an assessment using these sight lines. And I'll use this as our closing verse. You know. You, You know. You know the grace of God. That grace came through Jesus Christ who was rich. But He became poor. So that through you His poverty might become rich. Let's pray together. I feel an anxiousness even in my own heart to to race out and just turn on the radio. Go home and turn on the golf channel or the cooking show or anything just to start getting my mind off the reality of what James and you say to us this morning. But I believe for us, this is maybe the critical passage here in this book. And it so shapes everything about our lives. And Lord, if this message has saved my own feet from the fire, or my friends, oh, we'll be so grateful that day. That we set down a a marker, an Ebenezer, and we said, I just lived differently after that. wasn't the same. Lord, I don't have the answers to the questions that these people are posing. But I know that you do. And you're a father who wants to help, discipline, encourage his children in your ways. And I pray that you would do that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.